I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. So here I am, Sam Evans Brown, reporting from Closet Studio, uh, I think it's like 4.0. <laughs> nice. And with me virtually on Zoom, like the entire world, uh, for some reason, despite <laughs> privacy concerns, is producer Taylor Quimby. Where does today's story begin? Well, it begins, as many stories like this do, a long, long time ago, with an old amateur scientist. While engaged in the forenoon of Thursday, September the 1st, in taking my customary observation of the forms and positions of the solar spots, an appearance was witnessed, which I believe to be exceedingly rare. So these are the words of 19th century amateur astronomer and Charles Darwin Beard impersonator Richard Carrington. Now, Carrington was, as everybody knows, the author of Catalog of 3,735 Circumpolar Stars. A classic. But we are here to talk about an event that happened in late summer of 1859 when he witnessed history whilst observing the sun. I had secured diagrams of all the groups and detached spots and was engaged at the time in counting from a chronometer when, with the area of the Great North Group, two patches of intensely bright and white light broke out. Now, it may seem that a bright spot on the sun is of little consequence. Uh, So to translate why this is such a big deal is Noah Lugaz, research associate professor at the Space Science Center, at the University of New Hampshire. Typically, I mean, there are flares, what you call them, so large emission of light from the sun uh, every day. But they are mostly visible in the ultraviolet and X-ray emissions. So unless you have an X-ray filter, which at the time people didn't have, 
you wouldn't see that. But this one was so bright that you actually see it in the emission of the sun, just like imagine a light bulb exploding. So it's something you can see with the naked eye without any equipment. And what's more, Carrington wasn't the only one to see this. Another observer, independent of him, saw the same bright flash and jotted down his findings. And I guess that was it for that day. But then the next night... The northern lights go crazy. Uh, some people actually, you know, stars think it's even daylight kind of starting. And, and it's report from uh, newspapers that people could read the newspaper at 1 a.m., in the middle of the night. So just imagine how bright this aura is where. I mean, it's pretty much as bright as, as sunlight. People must have legitimately thought the world was ending. How have I not heard about this before? Like, Northern Lights as bright as the sun. Yeah. But, but there's uh, another big weird thing here. These Northern Lights were not entirely Northern. So, yes, there were recorded sightings in the more typical latitudes where auroras are common, like Toronto, Canada. The whole night sky was covered with a brilliant mass of streamers, patches, and luminous bands. And Lewiston, Maine. Long brushes of pale white light were shooting up from the west and also the east. But the sightings are also coming from places like Indiana. The most extraordinary display of the aurora borealis I have ever Witnessed. There are reports from newspapers in Mississippi. Mississippi? A belt of white light tinged with pink shot up from the northern horizon to the height of 20 or 25 degrees. And even the director of an observatory in Havana, Cuba. At the second hour, the aurora had attained its highest magnificence. The heavens then appeared stained with blood and in a state of complete conflagration. So that's what I mean when I say, go crazy. I love this. I have to say, I like one of my favorite ways to think about the the aurora is as this light show that we get when the planetary defenses are like all geared up, keeping us safe from from the craziness of the sun. So, so I have to say, like, sign me up for this. Like in my lifetime, I would like to see the light show of this proportion. Hold that thought until you've heard the whole story. So at the time, the most advanced technology was telegraph. Uh, which you know we don't use anymore, but the basic idea is you know you run some current inside a telegraph line to to send a message. The same night, telegraph machines around the world start spitting sparks, or in some cases, working without being plugged into a battery, without being attached to a power source. Oh, terrifying! Yeah, this is like the sort of thing you see in a horror movie, right? Where you like, yep. you know, there's like a a TV on, and then it's the static, and then somebody pulls the plug, and it's still going. That's pretty much what happened. So people turn off their telegraph, and they could still send message and receive messages, and I'm pretty sure that freaks them out. I think probably some telegraph line burst um, just because of how strong the current was running through them. This incident, the lights, the telegraph wires, the whole thing, is now referred to as the Carrington event, after our friend who witnessed the bright light on the sun just before it started. My first impression was that by some chance, a ray of light had penetrated a hole in the screen. Now, if that whole thing sounds scary to you, or maybe even a little cool, Sam, <laughs> I want you to imagine that this didn't happen in 1859. Imagine that it happened today. And instead of telegraph machines going haywire, imagine that it was our electric grid. Imagine no radio, no GPS, no electricity, no music. That sounds bad. That's a catastrophe. It is indeed. 
This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, Taylor tells us the story of an event that changed how humans view the sun. An event that, if it happened today, would wind up being very, very not cool. This is a story that asks, how do you prepare for a disaster that always seems incredibly far away until it's not? Okay, Sam, have you ever heard of the phrase, a black swan event? Yes, because we are in one, supposedly. Right, right. Uh, So for listeners who have not heard of this, a black swan event is a seemingly improbable and highly disruptive thing that the world isn't ready for, but in hindsight, that we should have seen coming. So back in 1859... Flashes and pulsations continued with varying brilliancy until after 11 o'clock. People didn't have the scientific knowledge to really understand what was happening during the Carrington event, but that's not the case anymore. Now, you know, we have the tech, we have the scientific knowledge to know what and how often these sorts of things happen. Right, because we know solar science now. Right, right. Speaking of which, do you know what a... I mean, you must know what a sunspot is. Yeah, it is a an area of low solar activity, a dark a dark patch on the sun. Right, a spot on the sun. Uh, and they form because there are these areas where the sun's magnetic field gets all twisted up. Uh, it, like, cools down the surface, and it stores up what you might call, or what I am going to call, solar fuel. And then sometimes you just get so much of this energy being in the sunspot that just break up and explode. In terms of explosion, I mean, is, is this like an explosion you would see like from TNT? I mean, is it like literally blowing up on the surface? Like, Yeah, it's literally blowing on the surface, except it's, you know, billions of nuclear bombs where you kind of level of things. When these explosions are big enough to send stuff shooting into space like this, they're called CMEs or coronal mass ejections. And they send waves of radiation and little particles traveling at ridiculously high speeds. If they hit the Earth, that is a geomagnetic solar storm, um, which is what we call the thing that was the Carrington event. This is what I was saying, that like the northern lights are the Earth's defenses. Which, But doesn't that also tell us that this is happening all the time because the northern lights are happening all the time? They do, yeah. Uh, the sun goes through this cycle where activity goes up and down. Typically, you're going to have maybe uh, one or two eruptions a week doing solar minimum, and maybe you're going to have three or four per day doing solar maximum. But most of them are, you know, they're either so weak that we're protected by the Earth's magnetic field, or they just miss the planet. It's like a gun being pointed away from the Earth. Right. Like like space is big and in 360 degrees, and the Earth is small and in just one spot. Exactly. Uh, but when they do hit, the effects can be very weird, because what these things do is... Um, well, they screw up all our modern technology. Like Zoom? No, not Zoom. (laughs) Zoom would be down everywhere. Can you imagine? Like, we'd all be on Skype again. No, Skype would be down too. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I can't believe my brain. Oh, my brain is so broken. Can you imagine, though, like, the Carrington event and the coronavirus? Oh. It's not worth imagining. Yeah. In 1967, a solar storm interrupted surveillance radars and momentarily pushed U.S. forces to scramble for the possibility of nuclear war. Mm. In 1972, a solar storm detonated remote 
magnetically operated sea mines in South Vietnam. Like, they just exploded on their own. Oh, God. And this storm also happened to strike in between the last two Apollo missions. And had astronauts been out in open space, could have they could have been hit with a lethal dose of radiation. God. So, Sam, do you want to hear the worst case scenario? What scientists think if a solar storm as big as that original Carrington event hit the U.S. today, what that would do? Do I want to hear about this right now as I'm in my closet in the midst of a pandemic? Yes, you do. <laughs> like in the same way that I I must look at the car accident as I creep by on the highway. Uh, yes, hit me with it. Okay. 20 to 40 million Americans without power. Okay. For somewhere between, and this is a big range here, 16 days to one or two years. Two years, Taylor? I'm not finished. Total (laughs) economic cost, somewhere between 0.6 and $2.6 trillion. Oh, my God. (laughs) Can I, can I, uh... Can I just ask why? Like, what what is it that breaks in the grid that that would put it down for two years? Well, it's it's the biggest transformers that are the problem. Uh, for listeners, I know you know this, Sam, but those are like the big, weird, metal-y boxes that you see in certain spots behind chain-link fences. And they, they're the things that transition between high voltage and lower voltage. And in an event like this, the risk is that some of the big transformers might literally overheat and melt. And it's like really specialized manufacturing to make these things. They're handmade by specialized electricians that spend like a decade as apprentices. And if you were to order one today, it would take a year and a half or two years to get it. So, so, you know, think about what would happen if a ton of these were destroyed all at once. It would be, it would be the true black swan. Where most of us are caught with our pants down, But afterwards, the experts will point to reports and science and be like, guys, we knew this was coming. Eventually. Yeah. I think we need to take a break. Yeah. This closet's so uncomfortable. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. 
when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to Outside In. I have caught my breath. I am Sam Evans Brown. And I am producer Taylor Quimby. Bad News Bears, Taylor Quimby. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> and this is what it sounds like when a very expensive satellite doesn't quite make it to orbit. I think we've lost telemetry. I have a slight telemetry loss. I wish to express my deepest apologies. The total cost of that satellite was over $400 million. So it was, uh, it was rather an expensive loss that day. My name is David Wade. I'm a space underwriter uh, for the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, which is a consortium of Lloyd syndicates that underwrite satellites. They really do have insurance for everything, don't they? <laughs> they do indeed. Uh, so I called David because coronal mass ejections, or CMEs, could pose um, a real serious threat to satellites. And I figured David, who has built satellites and taught people to build satellites and now insures satellites, has a real incentive to, you know, try and sound the alarm about this possible future Carrington event, Carrington level event. I don't know what you call it. Carrington event 2.0. So is this, this is where we hear about how all the experts have been warning us for years. And, and so now that's why this is a black swan and why we should have seen it coming. Right. Yeah, I've always had an interest and a, and a concern about CMEs. I mean, across the space insurance market, there's about $30 billion of exposure in orbit. So this, um, Sam, is the scene in the movies where the expert comes like running in with their arms full of binders and charts and papers and is like trying to get politicians to pay attention, but he gets like yeah. laughed out of the room and they're like, nerd, the ink stain on your jacket. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much this scene, I think, in real life. So in terms of space weather, we have two realistic disaster scenarios considering space weather. One so David says that contrary to what might be your instincts on this, um, CMEs do have an impact on satellites, but it's not as bad as you would think. Really what they do is they damage the solar panels a little bit. They make them less efficient. Um, so if we did have a Carrington event... We think worst case, that would probably be something like 5% loss on every satellite that's in orbit. So, like, only a few billion dollars worth of insurance claims, he tells me. Just a few billion, no big deal. There's, like, individual humans in the United States who could cover that. <laughs> oh, oh, sad. Yeah. Uh, all in all, David is worried about CMEs, and he says there will be impacts because of the damage to satellites. But it's, it's like, that's, not, that's just not the thing. We are ever more reliant on the services that, that satellite provide. Um, and a major event, even if it did not affect the satellite itself, uh, would certainly lead to things like communication signals being knocked out, uh, GPS signals being knocked out. And the more and more we, life becomes reliant on those kinds of services means it's going to be the bigger, a bigger impact. David helped to co-author one of the dire reports that I looked over for this story. And while David is ostensibly a space guy, the report wound up being mostly about things happening down on Earth. 
like all the ripple effects caused by this extended loss of electricity. Food wastage, uh, transportation systems would be affected, pumping of water supplies, pumping of sewerage. And as we're seeing today with the coronavirus, like everything is connected, right? You cancel schools, mm. well then, where do some kids who rely on meal programs eat lunch? And how do healthcare workers get to the hospital if they don't have daycare? It's just one ripple after another. Yeah, and what are the consequences of those long blackouts? You know, do we then start to see shops running out of food? Uh, do we start to see civil unrest? Uh, yeah, the consequences are, are enormous. Do you do you struggle in uh, in your in your work generally to convince people that this is stuff that matters? Um, I we've well, I would say where we've struggled is we've written these reports for Lloyd's and they don't seem to get too much uh, uptake from other underwriting divisions. This is the ridiculous Hollywood moment where you see that we're not listening to the experts. Basically, David says he and the other space insurance nerds read up this disaster scenario report. They wanted to warn all the other insurers, like the ones that cover factories and electrical grids, and, and be like, guys, you need to be prepared for this. This is crazy. But as soon as that report was released, it got sent straight to the space underwriters, who were the ones that wrote the, wrote the, uh, the report in the first place. So they just like literally glanced at the title and they were like, oh, space weather. They sent it back to the people that wrote it. Like, oh, you guys should read this. Thanks, everybody. It is very difficult to to get other people interested in 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 a in a risk that they've never they've never paid a claim on. And until people start paying some claims on uh, on some of these risks, I don't think it will ever be taken taken seriously. So, is anybody out there doing anything to like prevent or to mitigate this? like possible disaster yeah um you know for sure there's like a bunch of people and the government especially you know for military reasons you know they they really do care about this sort of thing um there's this space weather action plan that the trump administration has put out and i looked through it and it's it's like kind of a to-do list of things that are like figure out what to do the plan is like come up with a plan right there are some new standards for transformers and we might start getting transformers that are better prepared for this sort of thing this decade, sometime in the 2020s. Uh, and, 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 you know, there's also a lot of people working and trying to figure out the the forecasting angle. Like, how can we have more advanced notice of when a CME is going to hit the planet? Like, so how much of a heads up do we have right now? Well, it's, it's not good. <laughs> it's, Never it's is. Not good. <laughs> yeah. I can give you a forecast with maybe half an hour warning, which is going to be almost perfect. Scientifically, we're going to be good enough, maybe, you know, with new missions and in a decade give you, you know, 30 minutes or a few hours warning uh, almost perfectly that you can actually make a decision on this. But to get uh, one day or two day advance warning, that's probably not in my lifetime. So then it's what's going to happen is people are going to ride the storm, if I may say. Uh, is, it a, is it a major disaster waiting to happen? Uh, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, if it's not taken seriously, then yes. Can I just say that as much as this seems to meet the criteria of a black swan, like it is a blind spot that we should be paying attention to, but we aren't, it just feels like there's so many things in this category. Like, 
like the massive earthquake that we're due for in the Pacific Northwest, like mega droughts in the Midwest, like pandemics, right? I mean, like we're told all the time that we're right on the cusp of disaster. And I I guess part of me is just like, I don't want to believe this, but is this just fundamental to the human condition that we can't grapple with risks that just seem remote and unlikely? It yeah, I mean it. It really does feel like that, um, and this is why, uh, especially given current circumstances, I wanted some good news, like a, a little bit. Um, I wanted to know what would it look like to be better. So it's all very well to say, oh well, I've only seen white swans, so therefore black swans or pink swans or blue swans don't exist. But where's our creativity? Where's our imagination? Where's our innovation? So this is Ilan Kelman. He works at two very relevant organizations right now. The Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction and the Institute for Global Health. And Ilan is basically like, even if we do get hit by an event that is truly unpredictable, I don't know, aliens, uh, we should and can build our communities better so that whatever happens, we can handle it. Or, or maybe not handle it, but like, handle it better than we would otherwise. Ensure that we have heroes like Will Smith ready <laughs> to pilot the alien spacecraft. Right. We should be more like actors. Is let's do away with black swans. Let's not be surprised, but let's be ready for anything that we create for ourselves or that nature throws at us. Right. So he's saying that we should just be more prepared, generally speaking. Yeah. I've, I've heard it called the all hazards approach. And what does that look like? Like, what does that mean? Basically, two weeks of food and water, flashlights, wind-up radios, batteries, medication, hygiene stuff. It's it's actually the same sort of stuff that we should have had before this pandemic um, and then everybody is hearing about now, uh, you know, before they started searching for toilet paper. Taylor, is this what's supposed to be the good news? Like, <laughs> like just have two weeks worth of food and water. I, I just feel like we're advising listeners to become preppers. No, 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 no. Preppers are like uh, ready to be in a bunker by themselves for the rest of their lives. And this, there is a real, real difference in what Ilan is talking about. I, I prefer not to call it prepping or surviving. I prefer to call it living. There are so many different groups out there and so many phrases, whether it's prepper or survivalist. A lot of them are only individualistic. They're interested in surviving for themselves, by themselves, without linking into wider society. What we're advocating is that people take responsibility as much as they can for their own lives, and where they can't, that we create the structures to help others. So disaster preparedness is about community. If you think about it, two weeks is not a huge amount of time to be ready for. This is not like advocating for people to be ready to cut themselves off from society. So the rest of the picture is to build up communities, create connections between folks who have the power and the privilege to be independent, and the vulnerable populations who don't have that luxury. Things that just make communities better places to live, like all the time. And so rather than having emergency preparedness be this siloed effort that's individually funded and separately organized, how do we bring that into closer contact with the routine social service and economic operations of a community. This is Anita Chandra, VP and Director of Social and Economic Wellbeing at the Rand Corporation. She's watching this whole pandemic play out and, you know, she's seeing people adapt. She's also seeing people and organizations fail. And and really, she's watching to see what happens afterwards. The question will be, you know, what 
what do we now take into our plans and policies going forward so these innovations aren't fleeting, they're actually baked in because we will be in this situation again. Can you make sure that you're a learning system? Are you actually taking the lessons from COVID-19 into your plans and policies in the future? Again, I don't want to I don't want to be just the guy who's grumpy in his closet here, but but I do I am feeling some cynicism that we might not take the right lessons away from this pandemic or at least that we'll forget them like relatively quickly. Yeah. And cuz I mean the example of this the Spanish flu was really only just a century ago, which is not that long. And did anybody remember that before all this started? Yeah. I I feel like every people think that everything changes. Like oh, it's different now, you know. I don't know. But Whatever, like my one last attempt to convince you uh, that we might just stand a chance of averting this particular disaster. Um, some places have already had a brush with it. It happened during the night at uh, 2 hours and 44 minutes a.m., the 13th of March, uh, 89. When I wake up in the morning, uh, there was no electricity. So this is Gilbert Sibyl. Uh, a research engineer that has worked for Hydro-Quebec since 1978. Now, people who remember our Powerline series will recall Hydro-Quebec is this massive public utility that supplies power to all of Quebec and exports also to the United States. Now, in 1989, a just huge solar storm hit Canada and knocked out power to all of Quebec for nine hours. And uh, the media was uh, were very, uh, let's see... Uh skeptical about that because it never happened before. We were the first uh, power utility to to experience a blackout due to a geomagnetic storm. But since then... He spent something on the order of one and a half billion dollars. So that's John Kappenman, an electrical engineer who's been authoring these big government reports and trying to get the U.S. to take the threat of geomagnetic storms seriously since the early 2000s. He says... They installed these things called series capacitors. They went the expensive route, yeah. You know, they didn't really have uh, an option back in the early 90s. I was just... And now, according to both Gilbert and John, Quebec is ready. So people are asking if this could happen again. Sure, it could happen again, and we simulate. We have simulated that phenomenon. So we can only work with probability, but uh, we have to be prepared to the worst case. And get this, John says, for the U.S. to install the 300 Carrington-proof transformers that we would need to defend ourselves against a really, really big solar storm, it would only cost the entire country a billion dollars. Which, if you divide it out between all the people paying electricity bills throughout the United States... It's the equivalent of an extra 50 cents per year, you know, about the cost of a postage stamp. Okay, now for real though, sign me up. <laughs> like I, I will chip in my fifty cents a year so that we can have the fantastic light show and not have a catastrophic societal collapse afterward. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if there was ever a moment, ever a moment in which spending a little <laughs> bit of money up front to avoid spending a lot down the line was going to be really appealing, like I think that moment is now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Now, while you're thinking about the fragility of society, let's let's talk about like readiness for cyber attacks and super volcanoes and mega droughts and oh, good one. Uh, you know, the return of the dinosaurs and alien attacks. Put that in there. Yeah. <laughs>
Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of the Aurora Dance Florialis and the Northern Disco Lights. Special thanks to our remote voice actors for this episode. Sean Hurley was the voice of Richard Carrington and other voices by Jason Moon, Emily Quirk, Nick Capodice, and Daniela Ali. Also, special thanks to the Earth's magnetic field, a.k.a. our solar space shield, for doing what you do. Keep it up, buddy. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode by Ari De Niro and Blue Dot Sessions. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public. Just kidding. Studiotron 6000. I am in something kind of resembling a studio. It is slightly better than before. My sleeping bag situation isn't perfect. But I sound slightly better than before. Hello, hello. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.